All right, welcome back to the listener's commentary on the book of 1 Corinthians. The listener's commentary is a crowdfunded Bible teaching project made possible by the generosity of folks just like you. So if you're one of those who make this ministry possible, thanks a ton for your support. If you want to join the team of supporters, you could swing over to listenerscommentary.com, click the Give button, and that'll uh, direct you to a page where you can then um, set up a one-time or a monthly recurring donation. All donations are received in partnership with World Family Mission. So just put in the amount, click the little box that says make this a monthly donation, and uh, you can help support this ministry so that it can continue to grow and impact the lives of people all around the world. All right, in this recording, we're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 14 through chapter 11, verse 1. It is the final paragraph in this overall topic that began in chapter 8, dealing with the subject of meat offered to idols, especially eating in the dining rooms or banquet halls at a temple complex. And in chapter 8, when Paul began this uh, subject, Paul really raised the topic and what he sees as the underlying issue. And that underlying issue is how their knowledge, those who are maybe a little more mature, maybe those who don't have a problem with idolatry, how their knowledge about idols and the one true God um, made them arrogant and unloving. And so he called them to use that knowledge and their freedom for the good of their brothers and sisters in Christ, rather than sin against them by eating in temples. That was essentially the main thing Paul said in chapter 8. In chapter 9, Paul used his ministry as a model for giving up your rights and your freedoms for the sake of others, rather than serving yourself. Now in chapter 10, he's began to return to the main topic of meat offered to idols again. And the first thing he did in chapter 10, verses 1 through 13, our last recording, is that Paul offered a warning from Scripture, a warning about spiritual experiences and how just because you've had certain spiritual experiences, that doesn't give you the freedom or the permission to just skip ongoing routine faithfulness to God. Now, here in the one the passage we're going to look at in this recording, verses 14 and following, Paul speaks directly to the Corinthians about how he wants them to handle this issue of meat offered to idols. And there really are two parts to this topic here in this final paragraph. The first part is eating in the dining room or the banquet hall of the temple. What does he want them to do about that? Then, towards the end of this section... There is a secondary piece to that, and that is, well, what about eating the meat in the marketplace, since a lot of that came from the idol temples, too? And so those are the two chunks that we're going to look at here in this final paragraph on this topic. And Paul begins the subject coming out of that warning from the example of the Old Testament Israelites. Paul begins with a very clear, specific call to action. Look at verse 14. He says, therefore... Based on this warning, based on the experience and the example of uh, the Exodus generation and their unfaithfulness to God, based on everything I said in 1 through 13, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. And so, obviously, we're back to the main topic that Paul is dealing with. And here is his basic uh, command. Flee from idolatry and anything that would associate you with idolatry. In fact, he goes on in verse 15 and says, look, I speak to wise people. You then judge what I'm about to say. Since you guys are in the know and are so wise, tell me if what I'm about to say 
is accurate or inaccurate. And then he actually gives several examples of what ritual meals mean, beginning actually with the Lord's Supper, with communion. Look what he says in verse 16. He says, Is the cup of blessing which we bless not a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is the bread which we break not a sharing in the body of Christ? He's talking about communion, uh, the cup of blessing and the bread, right? He's talking about the Lord's Supper. And he's saying, isn't when we take that, isn't like we're sharing in, partaking of the blood and the body of Jesus? And the implied answer, of course, is, is yes, that's true. When we take the cup, when we take the bread, it's uniting us with, it's sharing and it's participating in the very body and blood of Jesus. So yes, by eating that meal, we're sharing in it. Um, he actually draws another implication from the Lord's Supper. He says, since there's only one loaf, like there's only one bread, Jesus broke the bread and passed it out to his disciples. Bread was, you know, round, flat little things of bread typically in their culture. And so there was one bread. And typically when they took communion, there'd be one bread that was broken into pieces and they would take it together. So he says, since there's one loaf, we, the body of Christ, who are many, are one body, for we all partake of the one loaf. So not only is it a sharing in the body and blood of Jesus, but it also unites us together into one body of Christ, one new family in Jesus. So this ritual meal that we call the Lord's Supper or Communion, it unites us with Jesus, it unites us with each other. What about Israel, the Jews, and the temple. Well, look at verse 18. He says, think about this ritual meal. Look at the people of Israel. Literally, look at Israel according to the flesh. That is the Jewish people, the physical nation. Look at them. And he says, are those who eat the sacrifices not partners in the altar? And the word partner there is the same word translated share in verse 16 and partake in verse 17. You're, you're, partners in, you're sharing in, you're partaking of the altars. And certainly partners is uh, one of the senses of the word. I just wish sometimes in close context like this, the translators would be consistent so we could hear the verbal and linguistic connection. And since we're talking about eating, it has the nuance of partaking of or partaking in. We're partaking in the altar. Um, and so, in the Jewish temple, those who eat the sacrifices, mainly the priests, but also sometimes the people, depending on the occasion and the sacrifice, they participate in, they share, and they partake of the altar. When Christians eat communion, they partake of or share in the body and blood of Jesus, and they're united together in one family. So what does that imply about sacrifices in idols' temples and partaking of those things? Well, look what he says in verse 19. What do I mean then? That food sacrificed to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? He's already agreed in chapter 8 that technically idols are nothing, and that there's only one God. He said that in chapter 8 as he began this discussion, that he agreed with those in the know that yes, they're right, there is only one God, and technically an idol is nothing. But there's more to it than that. So look at verse 20. But he says, no, no, it's not like the idol is really anything. But, literally, rather, it's a strong contrast, that word but here is. No, but I say that the things which they sacrifice, that is the pagans, the, the Gentile pagans, the things which they sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. 
And I don't want you to become partners with demons. And again, that word partners, the same word partaking of, sharing in. If sharing in uh, the body and blood of Jesus means you share in Christ. If uh, sharing in the altar or eating the, the altar meat from the temple in Jerusalem means you share in the altar. Well, guess what? Eating the temple meat in the temple complex means you're partaking of that whole sacrifice, that whole complex. And I don't want you to be partakers of demons. That's the point, And that would not be good. Now, this idea of uh, offering sacrifices to demons and being partakers of demons, that's not like a theological innovation that Paul has just made up on his own. This is actually what the Hebrew scriptures taught, and Paul is operating out of that. In fact, through this whole discussion in chapters 8, 9, and 10, Paul's been working out of the Torah. And Paul has an Old, Test- Old Testament passage in mind here with the idea of uh, sacrificing to demons, that's likely been in the back of Paul's mind the whole time. And that passage is Deuteronomy 32. Let me read just a portion of Deuteronomy 32, uh, 32, 15 through 18. And you can hear the connections to some of the things Paul has said. He says this about Israel. He says, Israel, you have become fat and thick and obstinate. Then he abandoned God who made him. And rejected the rock of his salvation. Do you hear the connection with calling Christ the rock earlier on? Uh, They made him jealous with strange gods. With abominations, they provoked him to anger. And God's anger burned against them in the wilderness, Paul has said. They sacrificed to demons, not to God. To gods whom they have not known. New gods who came lately, whom your fathers did not know. And you forgot the rock who fathered you the God who gave you birth. So in saying that pagan sacrifices are sacrifices to demons, you could hear it right there in verse 17 from Deuteronomy 32, Paul is simply working out of the theology of the Hebrew scriptures that he has grown up with and that he loves. He doesn't want them to repeat the same sin that Israel and her unfaithfulness repeated and become partakers of demons. And, and so that's the call. Like, it's not so much that there's, there's an idol that represents a real God, but it, that pagan worship is connected in some sense to demons. And so he doesn't want them to be participants in that. And he emphasizes this with a series of rhetorical questions. Look at verse 21. He says, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord, i.e. communion, and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord, again, communion, the bread, and the table of demons. You just can't do that. Like, you're either going to be faithful to God in Christ, and you're going to identify with him, or you're actually going to participate in pagan worship that is connected to the demons. And then he goes on and says in verse 32, or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? And you heard that in Deuteronomy 32 as well. Verse 16, they made him jealous with strange gods. Do you want to be guilty of that? Like Israel was guilty of that? Uh, Well, we are not stronger than he, are we? And this likely would strike those among the Corinthians who think of themselves as strong and who refer to those who who can't eat meat offered to idols without feeling guilty as weak, right? Do you really think you're so strong that you can contend with God? And so the point is, don't eat in uh, idol temples because that is sharing in and partaking of the false worship there that's offered to demons. So in relationship to God, 
Eating in temples is clearly unfaithful to your covenant relationship with God in Christ that's embodied in eating the body and the, uh, the body and blood of Jesus in communion. Well, what about in relationship to your brothers and sisters in Christ? And guess what? Paul goes on here and he restates the reason to avoid idol meat that he gave in chapter 8 with regards to your brothers and sisters. Look at verse 23. He quotes them again. All things are permitted, just as he quoted them in in chapter 8, but not all things are beneficial. All things are permitted, quoting them again, but not all things build people up. Right? Again, we're, we're in the same context we were in chapter 8. No one is to seek his own advantage, rather that of his neighbor. Again, this echoes chapter 8 with those in Corinth who claim to be in the know and thus feel free to eat idle meat whenever they want to and wherever they want to. And they say things like, well, guess what? I'm free to do that. All things are permitted to me. Paul says, yeah, but they're not beneficial. And they don't build up others. And so, in relation to your brothers and sisters, if idle meat makes someone stumble and fall, don't eat it. Just as Paul said in chapter 8. And so, Paul comes down very hard on, uh, be very cautious about eating idle meat. We're to seek the good of our neighbor and we're to be loyal to God at all costs. And so, seek the good of your neighbor. And notice that at the end here, verse 24, but rather seek the advantage or the good of your neighbor. And Paul probably chose the word neighbor here to reflect or echo the command to love your neighbor as yourself. Um, And the word neighbor is broad enough that it includes both your fellow believers, but also the unbelievers who are close by. So he comes down very hard on not eating idle meat, but there is some nuance to this and there is a certain measure of freedom. And that has to do with outside of the temple complex and the temple dining rooms and uh, those sacred meals that happen in the temple. Outside of that, what about the meat in the meat market? Well, look what he says in verse 25. He says, eat anything that is sold in the meat market without asking questions for the sake of conscience. A lot of the meat that would have been sold in the meat market in a place like Corinth actually came from the temple sacrifices. Paul says, look, don't worry about it. Um, Don't eat that meat in the, the temple complex, but in the meat market, just go buy meat if you want to. Don't ask questions. Don't worry about it. You are completely free. Because at that point, you're not participating in the the ritual context of the meal. So you're free to do that. Um, And he actually gives the rationale for it in verse 26. Here's why. Why? Well, because the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. This is quoting Psalm 24.1, right? It all belongs to God. We know there's one God. We know the whole world belongs to him. We know, therefore, that that meat is uh, from him as well. So go to the market, buy the meat, don't ask. Don't worry about it. Great. But what if one of your unbelieving friends or maybe your unbelieving business partner invites you over for dinner? Pause some advice on that as well. Look at verse 27. If one of the unbelievers invites you and you want to go, eat anything that is set before you without asking questions, again, for the sake of conscience. If they invite you over, go. Eat whatever they serve you. Don't ask questions. Don't worry about it. You have freedom here. You're not guilty here. Just like when you buy meat from the market, total freedom here. But what happens if you're sitting there at the meal and someone tells you in that context that it's actually idle meat? You didn't ask the question, but somebody brings it up themselves. Look at verse 28. 
if anyone says to you, this meat is sacrificed to idols, right? We, this, we, we, we got this from uh, Asclepius' temple. We got this from Jupiter's temple or whatever it was. This meat is sacrificed to idols. Don't eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. So if someone tells you that this is idol meat, guess what Paul's advice is? Don't eat it. So when you buy meat from the meat market, don't ask, don't worry about it, you're free. When um, you someone has you over for dinner, if no one says anything, eat the meat, don't feel bad about it, enjoy it, don't worry about it. But if you're sitting there at the dinner party and someone says to you, this meat was offered to idols, don't eat that meat. Now, who is this person who would say that? Paul doesn't tell us. He leaves it very broad, anyone, very general. Maybe it's another unbeliever at the meal, maybe testing you, maybe um, maybe just not even thinking about it. Yeah, we went down to uh, Asclepius today. They had this, you know, sacrifice. Um, we bought some of the meat from them, right? Maybe it's just as innocent. Maybe they're testing you. Maybe it's actually a fellow believer, a fellow church member who's with you at this meal, and they're actually one of those weak church members. It's a gathering of business associates, and this person's a newer believer, and they're one of those whose conscience is defiled if they eat idol meat, and they found out through somehow through the conversation that this is idol meat, and they said it. So we don't know who this person is. Believer, unbeliever, we don't know. Paul doesn't specify, but what Paul does make clear is that we should be concerned about the other person. We don't seek our own advantage. We seek the good of our neighbor, as he just said. And that means we're not going to eat that meat. Look what he says in verse 29. Now, by conscience, I don't mean your own, but I mean the other person's. Again, we're seeking the good of our neighbor. So in keeping with that general principle, we don't eat that idle meat for their conscience sake. Since you, right, since you're strong, you know that there's only one God and your conscience isn't going to be defiled by eating that meat. Yeah, you could eat that meat, no big deal. But Paul's not worried about your conscience. He's concerned about the other person's conscience, just as he was back in chapter 8. And so Paul drives home this point with two rhetorical questions that explain what he means by being concerned for their conscience. Look what he says, four. Notice, for is a connective that means he's explaining this. He's amplifying it. He's giving the reason and what he means by, uh, I'm concerned about their conscience. So he says, for, why is my freedom judged by another person's conscience? And then verse 30, if I partake with thankfulness, why am I slandered about that for which I give thanks? Now, I'll be honest. For a long time, I read the second half of verse 29 and verse 30, these two questions here. I read them and I read them wrong and I couldn't figure out, wait a second, Paul says four, he's explaining, but I don't see how they fit. And that was because what I heard Paul saying was, why should I be judged for doing something that I'm completely free to do? Well, I shouldn't. So they shouldn't judge me. That's what I heard. And that didn't fit with the logic of Paul's sentence. And so then I'm like, well, what does Paul really mean here? Um... And it hit me, I was hearing Paul uh, say almost the opposite of what he actually was saying. Um, Paul has said in this whole section, forego your freedom and don't eat that idol meat for the sake of their conscience. So when he asks these rhetorical questions, the point he's making has to support that principle. So what's the point of the rhetorical questions? Well, the point is this, don't, don't indulge your freedom 
so that the other person's conscience won't be damaged and then you would be judged because you're harming that other person, whether it's a brother or sister or whether it's an unbeliever. You don't want to be judged. Even though you think you're free to do that, you don't want to be judged and held accountable for harming them and their faith. That's why it begins with four, because Paul is explaining and amplifying what he just said. And this point, I think, is actually particularly clear in the second question. Why eat, even eat with thankfulness, and then be spoken against? In other words, say an unbeliever at the meal, and he might say, well, hey, Bob, you know, he says he's a Christian, but he's not afraid to eat Asclepius's meat. He gladly does that. It's no big deal to him. So, hey, Asclepius, Christ, eh, take both, right? And since um, polytheism and worshiping lots of gods, right, uh, was a normal thing, um, this unbeliever at the meal is going to be like, yeah, you could add a little Jesus to Asclepius and blend them all together. I mean, Bob's Christian witness uh, and identity is compromised and the unbeliever feels no conviction to give up his idolatry and follow Jesus. Or if it's a believer at the meal who's the one that brought this up and said, hey, that's idol meat. Um, well, then the, the example would be he would be like the guy in chapter 8 who's like, I just can't do that in good conscience. And yet he sees you with no problem eating that meat, it's like, well, I guess it doesn't really matter. So I can eat the table of the Lord and I can eat idol meat and it's no big deal. And for him, he, it's all associated with idolatry. And so Paul's point of the questions is don't eat that meat if somebody tells you because you don't want to have your faith, that is the truth about Jesus and even the truth about idolatry, spoken against just so you can indulge your freedom. Don't eat that meat. Don't damage their conscience because of it. And with that, Paul wraps up the issue of eating meat offered to idols by saying, therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, big broad principle, do all things for the glory of God. Don't offend Jews or Greeks or the church of God. So you have two things to keep in mind. Your loyalty and faithfulness to God. Do all things for the glory of God and the good of other people, Jews, Greeks, and the church of God. And when he says, do not offend, that sounds like, do your best not to offend other people. That's not really what he means. That's not really what the word of, that's translated offend here gets at. It means don't make someone stumble and fall. Don't damage their faith. And that's what Paul's been talking about all through chapters 8, 9, and 10. And so in the matter of meat offered to idols, and presumably in the matter of other morally neutral things where you have freedom, Paul says, conduct yourself in a way that's going to honor God and it's not going to damage another person in such a way that they are going to struggle to be faithful to Jesus. And that's what he means by Jews, Greeks, or the church of God. Unbelievers and believers. Jews, Greeks, right? It's unbelievers and it's believers. Everybody. Just as Paul said about his own ministry in chapter 9, how um, he tries to make himself, he becomes all things to all people that he might win some, save some. Same thing with meat offered to idols. Be sensitive to the impact it has on other people. And so recalling his example from chapter 9, Paul wraps this section up in verse 33 and uh, verse 1 of chapter 11 by saying, Just as I also please everyone in all things, not seeking my own benefit, but the benefit of the many. This is chapter 9, right? His example that was uh, a pattern for them to follow. Just as I do that, um, and I'm calling you to do that so that they may be saved, be imitators of me just as I am of Christ. So follow my example, mimic me, imitate my pattern, and imitate me as I imitate Christ. 
Now, as we wrap this section up, let me just offer um, a little, little reflection, really a case study. And that case study is about specific applications and uh, what one person calls the ladder of abstraction. Let me show you what I mean. Here we have a very specific ab application of a biblical principle. In the case of meat offered to idols, don't eat in the idol's temple because that's participating in the, the pagan demonic worship that goes on there. And eat whatever meat you want to, unless you find out it's idol meat, then don't do it out of consideration for another person's conscience, right? And so um, there is a specific application of a broader principle. And what that means is if you're in a situation where eating, where there's meat offered to idols going on, follow Paul's specific instructions. If it's a very similar parallel situation where the specifics pertain still, then take Paul's instructions and apply them just as he did. But if you're in a different situation where uh, the specific application isn't as big of a deal, that doesn't mean the principle still doesn't pertain. Um, and so you have to climb up the ladder of abstraction and apply the general principle that lies behind the specific application. So in Corinth, in the year 55 AD, meat offered to idols was a specific application of a broader principle. Um, like, don't be a stumbling block to another person's faith, faith damaging their conscience and keeping them from following Jesus. Um, Consider your, the impact of your behavior in morally neutral areas on the faith of other people, whether believers or unbelievers. And then even broader than that is the, the overarching principle of love, right? Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And we want to act for building up of other people. Paul takes that same principle and, and tells us in chapter 9 how that actually played out in some of his ministry uh, approaches, that he was willing to adjust his behavior based on trying to build other people up and build bridges for the sake of the gospel. Um, well, now we have a specific principle that though we don't have the specific situation maybe in our context, like in my cultural context, I don't have to worry about any of the meat I'm buying at the grocery store being offered to idols. But I, I should be concerned about um, still in areas that are morally neutral, where we do have legitimate freedom, I should be concerned about um, what is in the best interest of others, not seeking my own benefit uh, from my freedom, but the benefit of many other people that they might be saved. How can I do that? What does that look like? And if I go up further to this love of uh, limiting my rights and my freedoms for the well-being of others. How does that play out in my life? And so in morally neutral areas, this text calls us to be ready to limit our freedoms and our rights for the glory of God and for the good of others.